Good morning. Um, my name is Ryan Lee Wong. I'm the administrative director here at Brooklyn Zen Center. Um, and I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Chen Ching Han, our special guest, um, this morning. Um, by way of introduction, um, I first heard of Chen Ching's work um, through May We Gather, which um, was an event that first happened 49 days after the shootings um, in Atlanta. And um, it was an incredibly powerful event because it honored and allowed us space to grieve not only that event, but um, a whole history of anti-Asian and anti-Buddhist violence in this country. And it was this profound turning point um, for me as a practitioner, and I think um, for all of us who watched it together that day. Um, and it was just done with such beauty and care um, and invited many different lineages of Buddhism together under one roof. So I think in a way it was also a turning point for um, what we call American Buddhism. Um, I then heard about this book called Be the Refuge, um, which is a series of interviews and conversations with mostly young Asian American Buddhists. And um, I also instantly recognized the profound importance of this, both for me personally, and I think for this wider conversation of what it means to be a Buddhist in America. Um, and every single interviewee of the dozens has this like incredibly beautiful, complex story about race and lineage. And some have Buddhism in their families, some don't, some are <clears throat> more converts. Um, and the book really holds this beautiful complexity. Um, and this morning we are here to um, talk about um, Chen Ching's new book, uh, One Long Listening. Um, and um, to me, the books are very much connected. So I think we'll touch on both. And for those who are interested, um, Be the Refuge is actually going to be our first um, BZC summer reading pick. So um, I invite everyone here to um, please um, you know, consider reading it with us. Um, and uh, Chen Ching will return in the fall to um, over Zoom to kind of like help us have a conversation about Be the Refuge. Um, so we'll have about, um, 40 minutes of conversation and then, um, about 20 minutes of question and response, um, with all of you. And, um, the format will be, um, this book is organized into these really beautiful short passages, which, um, Chen Jing calls beads, which I love. Um, so... Um, I've asked her to read um, some of these and we'll have a little chat and then we'll read another one. And we'll have a little chat. Um, so Chen Ching, thank you so much for being here and um, please start us off with the first um, reading. Thank you so much, Ryan, for that very generous introduction. Also just for your deep attentiveness and care in reading both and also attending May We Gather. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, let me try, I'll try to project, always a little harder when sitting down. Thank you all, everyone at Brooklyn Zen Center for just maintaining and 
caring for this beautiful space. I'm really honored and privileged. I just feel really humbled to be able to be here. And it's just a joy to be in Sangha with all of you. Just last weekend, I was sitting in with the Buddha Dharma Sangha in San Quentin, actually. Um, I know some of you here are connected to that community. And as of yesterday, I've moved away from California and, and I'm in a liminal time between moving to Michigan. But I get to stop here in New York to be with all of you. And then I'll be in Korea next week for the Sakyadita Buddhist Women's Conference. So just want to thank you all for being here both in person and on Zoom. And we thought we would open with one of the beads, um, beads as in like in a mala uh, from One Long Listening. My aunt helps me find the words to introduce myself to Chinese speaking patients at the hospital. This is the aunt who lives in Shanghai who once thoroughly trounced me at a game of Scrabble when she visited us in Seattle. Footnote, only teenage hubris can explain my surprise at having lost to a woman who read dictionaries cover to cover during the Cultural Revolution. Did I mention she's a translator and writer? End of footnote. We agree that Zongjiaoshi, religious teacher, sounds too literal while jingshenzhichi, spiritual supporter, sounds a bit stiff. She muses. In Chinese, jingshenzhudao or xinlishudao is quite an occupational term, but guanhuai may sound more humane. Alternatively, you can use zhenwen guanhuai or xinlin guanhuai, which are both suitable in this case, but maybe too extensive in meaning. Shenzhenyuan is awkward for non-believers, but still embraces a broader sense than Mu Shi, which is strictly used in the Christian context. Mu Shi, shepherd teacher, is the translation I encounter most often. But the Lord is not my shepherd, and a hospital chaplain's flock is not exclusively Christian, especially not here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I end up explaining not who I am, but what I do, or simply the chaplain's job distilled to a single word, care. Beautiful, um, thank you for that. I just want to ask first, any chaplains here today from Union or elsewhere? Yeah, wonderful. So um, uh, like the whole book, this passage contains so much. Uh, we touch on the cultural revolution, we touch on translation, um, we touch on the nature of chaplaincy. Um, and I want to ask first, um, you know, about, so I'll, I'll admit, I, I meet a lot of folks from Union and they're like, oh, I'm a chaplain. And I, I just kind of, I like smile and nod. I'm like, okay, that's cool. So like, um, what is a chaplain? And um, and can you talk about the process of actually defining that? Sure. I think this whole book, it was my attempt to try to understand what is a chaplain. You know, like I say in the beginning of the bridge, which I call the bridge, I, I say this book is about one chaplain's way, even though I am not at present a badge wearing or lanyard wearing chaplain, but I did a year of clinical pastoral education or CPE. And 
I think there's many ways we can translate. This is sort of what I was trying to understand in talking to my aunt when I was meeting Mandarin speaking patients in the hospital. I actually struggled at first. I would just say, oh, I'm a volunteer or I didn't really have the words. And I think it was actually needing to understand what is chaplaincy in this broader context, in a global context that made me realize it's actually very multicultural and very diverse even here in the U.S. context, I suppose, you know, this in this passage, I think of it as spiritual care, however we define that. And people in the U.S. are coming from so many different spiritual lineages and religions. There's so much complexity here. And also there's this professionalized field of chaplaincy, which is very much shaped by white Christianity, or I'd say by Christianity that is often white dominated, although in the context of my CPE training, my supervisors were all black Christian women, and a lot of my peers in the spiritual care department were also quite diverse, but I was the only Mandarin speaking patient on the spiritual care team. And so this book really, I think, is a book of questions, um, not the way answers can be kind of slippery. And in the bridge, in the opening, I talk about that a uh, really well-known Zen quote, not knowing is most intimate, 不知最亲切. And I think the whole book is offered with that spirit. I didn't know what a chaplain was for most of my life, um, what that term meant. And it was really a friend who said, oh, I have really no idea what you're doing in the hospital as a chaplain. I said, I don't really know what I'm doing either. <laughs> but I, uh, her asking me that and asking just to share and wanting to know was actually one of the first seeds of this book, which probably from the beginning of my CPE residency to now has been almost a decade in the making. And then second on um, translation. So um, this book has this wonderful thing in the back, an unglossary, where the characters are given their um, pinyin equivalent, so like the phonetic um, transliteration of them, but not like a quote unquote meaning. And um, I love this. And I love the beauty of um, hearing you read this passage in two languages. I love the beauty of the characters on the page. Um, I know we have at least one translator in the audience. So I'm, I'm interested if um, you could speak a little bit about the decision to have that unglossary and to sometimes give hints at words, sometimes not to, translating, not translating. Absolutely. Um, so I say, you know, there's the languages I know and half know and barely know are kind of woven into this book. There's Mandarin, there's a bit of Shanghainese, which is fun to render since it's an oral language that I grew up with, but doesn't really have a script. Um, there's a bit of Khmer, having lived in Cambodia for a few years, and really my introduction to Buddhist chaplaincy began in Cambodia and Phnom Penh with Brahma Vihara, which was um, previously a Buddhist chaplaincy group in Cambodia, and really some of my first mentors in Buddhist chaplaincy. I think there's a smattering of Thai having lived in Bangkok right before the pandemic, maybe a touch of Japanese. And partly it was one of my questions that came out of Be the Refuge is how to right with an Asian American Buddhist sensibility, whatever that means. Um, I think your work of fiction, Ryan, which side are you on, does that so beautifully and in such a humorous and compelling way. Um, 
So translation, yes. A lot of it had to do with being in these hospital spaces in San Francisco, in Oakland, and encountering, again, so much diversity, linguistic diversity far beyond my capacity. Sometimes there are interpreters available to help with a spiritual care visit. Sometimes there's not. And I kind of wondered, what does it look like to honor that kind of diversity and also explain maybe even not so much what a chaplain does, but how chaplaincy feels. And there was, I think for me, sometimes a very unmooring aspect of entering into a room where an Eritrean mother has just died and everyone in the room is grieving and I don't understand the language. And I can't stop and ask someone to translate what's going on for me. So, so much of, I think, encounter, spiritual care encounter, where I say we step into this pivot moment of people's lives is first, I think it's an extraordinary gift to be able to step into that moment. And then what does it look like to meet the moment, to have to enter into some intimacy with not knowing? I thought it was a bit of a risky choice because in American publishing, it's actually kind of rare that we see Asian scripts in an untranslated way. I know people with bigger publishers are often asked to explain everything down to sort of mundane foods that we would take for granted. I mean, no one asks you to explain pizza, a dough-like object with, you know, toppings on top. And yet um, there's this kind of maybe assumption of a particular audience. So actually most of most everything is translated in context, kind of subtly. And it just reminded me of what it felt like to go into a room in the hospital, to enter someone else's world and to need to pick up clues and sometimes to be wrong um, and to have to really be in that discomfort of not knowing. Somewhere along the way, I had become convinced that to be a good Buddhist is to be a good meditator. It does not occur to me to interrogate what good might mean in this equation. Not until the Buddhist boyfriend and I moved to Southeast Asia will I realize that this equivalence renders the world full of bad Buddhists. Like the Cambodians who converged by the brothy Donle Sap on full and half and new moon days lotus buds and incense sticks in hand, awaiting their turn to make offerings at the riverfront shrine. Like our neighbor in Phnom Penh, whom we call Lokye, grandmother, who nonchalantly gives us local fruit and begrudgingly cares for stray cats and offhandedly mentions that we shouldn't assume she'll still be alive after our week-long trip to Laos. Despite our protestations that she is the spitting image of vigor. You never know, she shrugs, and we have to concede that she's right. We might not come back alive from Laos. Regular temple goers whose actions bespeak generosity and non-attachment and impermanence. But can they really represent Buddhism without its sine qua non, that cross-legged practice par excellence so glowingly embodied by svelte yoginis on glossy magazine covers? <clears throat> The summer after my first year of grad school, I attend a 10-day workshop on Guanging, the goddess of mercy who first arrived in China from India in the guise of the male bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. We are based, aptly enough, near Putuoshan, one of the four sacred mountains of Chinese Buddhism and the only one that is also an island. 
a pilgrimage site to which Guanyin devotees flock. After the workshop, with a day to spare before catching the train to Shanghai, I take the earliest morning ferry over. Meandering along the island's roads through forests and beaches, I chance upon a young Chinese couple on vacation. They tell me they aren't Buddhist, though one of them used to go to temple with her grandmother to Bai Bai, praying for good grades with three perfunctory nods of the head, cough-inducing jaw sticks sandwiched between her palms. The couple apologizes for the superstitions of this older generation. Is it true that in America, even ordinary run-of-the-mill people who aren't monks or nuns meditate? Now, isn't that a truer form of Buddhism? Somewhere along the way, I had become convinced that, that to be a good Buddhist is to be a white meditator. Thank you for that. Um, again, so many complexities in this passage. Um, and what it brought up for me was actually the first time I walked into the door of Brooklyn Zen Center and um, the meditation instructor, white woman, very friendly. And I immediately had this whole reaction where I was like, you're not doing it right. This is bullshit, but I don't actually know what the equivalent would be. And like, then I had this sense of shame at like not knowing. And then especially when we have service, I'm like, oh, I should know what to do. But then my brain was like, how? So I just love how this passage beautifully captures um, a parallel process. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, coming to terms with practice, um, you know, maybe letting go of the idea of being a good Buddhist or like working with that idea, um, having some play around it. Um, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I think for some context, it's helpful to know. I was born in Shanghai. When I was four, I moved to the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. And then I moved to the Seattle, Washington area and have been out in the Bay Area since college except for the times of living in Southeast Asia. But I wasn't raised Buddhist. I was raised by atheist parents. And so this journey of getting in touch with Buddhism began kind of between in a gap year during high school and college. I spent some time in China and then also was able to travel through Thailand and Nepal and Tibet. So that was an encounter with many different streams of Buddhism. And then in college in the Bay Area, wanting to learn more about Buddhism. Actually, I really started diving in in my junior year when I studied abroad in South Africa and I had this big stack of Buddhism books, you know, from Zen Mind Beginner's Mind to I'm sure books by John Kabat-Zinn and Thich Nhat Hanh and many other teachers. And some of my first Buddhist communities I really spent time with were Tsuji and Soka Gakkai, just briefly in South Africa. I think all of these travels made me really think how extraordinary this religion has adapted to so many different countries, to so many different cultural contexts. And then the more I started to spend time back in California, in the Bay Area, at both some Zen centers, insight meditation centers, but also Chinese or Taiwanese or Vietnamese or Cambodian temples, I just started wondering, I mean, starting to think about the kind of racial dynamics that would emerge there. And fast forward to 2012, when the Pew Forum report came out, noting that while Buddhists may be very much a minority in the US, 1%, two thirds are of Asian heritage. And I was both surprised and not surprised, but I think I was struck by 
reading things like Buddha Dharma or Shambhala Sun, which is now Lion's Roar, and feeling that the voices and faces of American Buddhism were largely represented by white convert Buddhists. That sometimes the story of American Buddhism goes, it began in the 60s and 70s with Zen meditators. But what happens to the Jodo Shin communities that have been here five, six generations since the 19th century? You know, what about the people who were Buddhist, Taoist, a mix of religions also in the 19th century from China, from Southern China? So I just started to wonder about all of these erased histories in a way. And where did I fit in as this Asian American convert? And so there was, I think at its core confusion and also curiosity, Be the Refuge really came out of that. I think it's an ongoing exploration and it's so interesting to arrive at this point, 2023, you know, here we are on the weekend of Juneteenth. I think there are so many more conversations about race, about history, about lineage happening in this broader culture, happening in our different communities. I think it seems to me happening also in Soto Zen spaces like this one, um, sitting last weekend, you know, with the men inside in the Sangha, a mostly Black and Latino and Asian group uh, community. So I don't know if I fully answered your question, but just to say, I had hoped that in some small way, both of the books would make it more possible to have some of these, frankly, uncomfortable conversations. I think those emotions you described, the ones, you know, read embodies in your book, like whether that's feeling self-righteous or angry or annoyed or offended when, you know, someone tells me for the millionth time, my English seems really good um, in a Buddhist space. I, I don't know. I think over time, over the years in steeping in Buddhist practices and meeting beautiful Buddhist spiritual friends and teachers from so many different backgrounds, so many different traditions, holding it with a bit of a sense of humor as well. I think that that has all, yeah, I, you know, it's hard to see oneself. I think that's why we need Sangha. That's why we need friends. So I don't know if I can fully answer your question, except to say that I appreciate you lifting up this passage. I know there's parts of me that, um, maybe almost feel a little embarrassed to read this passage, but it was very true to that time that I think for a long time, I thought to be a good Buddhist was to be a certain way, just as I think in your book, Reed thinks that there's sort of this ideal activist was to be a certain way. And one of my friends says, there's just as many ways to be Buddhist as there are Buddhists in the world. I think just as I would say, there are as many ways to be a chaplain as there are chaplains in the world. Yeah, you know, um... Speaking of being vulnerable on the page, I would actually love for you to read the one on page 74 next. If Kwa Su Tian Zhu is a cautionary tale about overdoing it, the moral was completely lost on me. On the last day of sixth grade, my teacher pulls me aside. She's about to congratulate me, I'm sure of it. My grades never deviate from the first letter of the alphabet. If an assignment calls for two pages, I turn in 12. You can't keep doing this. Her stern voice explodes my anticipatory pride into shards of shame. You can't work this hard. You are going to burn out. My lips tighten across metal braces. I want to scream, 
This is how I've survived the never ending disorientation, the move from China to America, the move from school to school to school to school to this school with a new school on the horizon next year, each time a whole new set of faces. This is the only way I know to be someone. I taste the blood in my mouth and say nothing. Time will prove her right, of course. It's a survival strategy that will nearly kill me. Thank you so much. Um, I know this passage resonates with me personally, and I know, I think, I think it's fair to say collectively in our Sangha, many folks have experienced um, burnout, have experienced a sense of like having to always be the best or on top of things. Um, but actually what I wanted to kind of ask you about this passage is what struck me about it was the powerful vulnerability of it. And I've actually had this like question in the back of my mind for many years now, like why aren't there more Buddhist memoirs? Like we all are sitting around looking at our suffering all the time. Like we love giving way-seeking mind talks um, and listening to them and Dharma shares. Um, so I would love for you to just talk about the decision to be so vulnerable on the page and to um, put all this uh, in a memoir and how that maybe relates to um, practice. And I also invite folks, if you're having trouble hearing, there's plenty of um, open cushions down in the front. Yes, please write memoirs. <laughs> um, yeah, oh gosh, the decision to write this. You know, this book kind of, I started Be the Refuge and then at a certain point, um, that began as a master's thesis, my first book at the Institute of Buddhist Studies, which is the oldest Buddhist seminary in the U.S. that trained Jodo Shinshu ministers beginning in 1949. And so it was quite profound to begin a book on Asian American Buddhists at this Asian American Buddhist institution that, you know, as Scott Mitchell argues in his latest book, The Making of American Buddhism, um, Scott was my advisor at IBS, um, really Jodo Shin Buddhists, we're so indebted to them so for the, their labor, for the creation of many of the structures that have made it possible for us to have American Buddhism, to practice American Buddhism. And there I interviewed 89 young adults from different cultural backgrounds and people were quite vulnerable. Sometimes our conversations are four or five hours. And then at a certain point in trying to turn all of these interviews into a book, um, I had a chance to speak briefly with Ruth Ozeki, the Buddhist author and Zen priest. And she really encouraged me to, she said, make this an account of your curiosity and write yourself in. And I was extremely resistant. It's very uncomfortable. It's very vulnerable. I buried myself in, you know, a few of the 500 footnotes in that particular book. Um, and then as people who've read Be the Refuge will know, um, my friend Aaron Lee, who wrote this blog called The Angry Asian Buddhist, was such an important part of that book. And he died of cancer at the age of 34. And then when he died, I just threw the whole draft out and I rewrote. Um, I think there's something about in the wake of the death of a dear friend. And I should add that the year before Aaron died, my very, very close friend, my college roommate, Amy, whom One Long Listening is dedicated to, she died of cancer at the age of 29. And there's a way in the wake of the death of people who are very dear to us that there is this rawness, there is this vulnerability. Um, and both of them, I think, lived their lives with a kind of like heart openness and 
a kind of deep expression of metta, of loving kindness. And in some ways, you know, like Alexander Chi says, write for your dead. I think I was writing not just for them, I think writing with them, writing in a way that wanted to continue their bodhisattva ways of being in the world. And so it was very uncomfortable um, to, to write these parts, to excavate these griefs in a way from childhood as an immigrant child who moved around a lot, whose parents did not live together because of their jobs. And to realize also writing this during the pandemic to be surrounded actually by a lot of grief, but not always be in a culture that knows, I think, how to grieve, especially collectively. So in some ways it seemed that out of respect for the people I spoke to, out of respect for the patients in the hospital, the families who were flayed into vulnerability by their circumstances, and were willing to share with a complete stranger. Um, I thought, you know, here I am, like, I don't want to cry. And like, all these people are crying. And I realized, oh, okay. Like, what is this about? What is this like holding myself separate? Or is it superior or protective? What does it look like to actually soften in that? Or what does it look like to... be willing to just be imperfect. It's like Gil Franzdahl, one of my chaplaincy mentors had said, he said, chaplaincy works better if the chaplain is imperfect. And when we're able to see those imperfections, not as a source of shame, but actually just as something we practice with and something that we actually can use as a form of connection, right? Every, we're all vulnerable. <laughs> it's the human condition. And so much of chaplaincy, I think it's a very humanist endeavor. So I appreciate your reflections on this. It, I hoped to be vulnerable while also, you know, in some ways protecting, protecting some privacy and in the ways I chose to tell other people's stories and my own, I tried to dance with that, dance with that line. Yeah. So, <clears throat> thank you for that. Um, and thank you for bringing in, you know, angry Asian Buddhist. Um, that was also a big influence on me, even though I never got to meet Aaron. Um, and it occurred to me actually in reading um, Be the Refuge that Be the Refuge could also be called One Long Listening. Like it is you really doing this profound work of sitting there and receiving people's stories day after day. It's also in a way a work of chaplaincy. Um, could we turn next to, um, the one on page 133. As a chaplain volunteer at the As Real As It Gets Community Hospital, I enter into my first family meeting. It's a tense tableau. The family members stand, arms crossed and stony-faced, next to the medical interpreter. The man whose fate is being discussed cannot join the conversation. 66 days ago, he had a heart attack while out jogging and wasn't found for over an hour. Now his options are being measured in a cramped windowless room. We hear a cascade of creaks and groans every time the upstairs toilet flushes. The doctor wants a Cantonese speaking Buddhist. I do not speak Cantonese. I am not yet comfortable identifying as Buddhist. But the bigger point is demographics are not determinative. People are messy. 
people confound categories. Categories quail at all this variation. Even if I speak their dialect, which I don't, and share their religion, they've given no indication of being Buddhist. What right do I have to coerce them into acting as the doctor seems fit, as the doctor deems fit? The doctor is on a roll. His brain shows no signs of improvement. Diagrams, images, statistics. He cannot make a meaningful recovery. Diagrams, images, statistics. He is not capable of intelligent action. He cannot think. Are these the same thing? Diagrams, images, statistics. He's not the dad or brother you knew. He'll never be like that again. The interpreter can barely keep up with the torrent of words. I empathize with the doctor's desire to put a do not resuscitate order in place. Without the DNR, if the patient suffers another cardiac arrest, the outcome will likely be the same, death, but with more broken ribs. How frightening it must be for the nurses too to believe this man can only worsen under their care. They are thinking of bed sores, aspiration pneumonia, iatrogenic illnesses. But the family insists, it's only been 66 days. He needs more time. He is improving. We massage his limbs every day. I feel his arms getting stronger. He still looks like my dad. When he looks at me, it's as if he's really looking at me, only he can't talk anymore. So I don't know what you are telling me, that he can't see me or hear me. I just don't know. They are not swayed by logos, the statistics, the charts, nor by ethos. These resources could be used for someone who can make a meaningful recovery. The doctor tries pathos. My own father was in a similar situation. I think we caused a lot of suffering. And now I wish we hadn't done all those things. Unimpressed by this confession, the family remains stony-faced, arms pretzeled even tighter than an hour ago. The meeting ends inconclusively. Later, I see the family uncap a bottle of greenish liquid and commence with a vigorous massage of the bedbound figure as they speak to him in Toisanese. We exchange a few words in Mandarin, but mostly they ignore me. 73 days after the heart attack, he's still there in the same room with another Chinese man of the same age. The new arrival has had a stroke. The, doc the doctors are pessimistic about the prognosis and the family has asked to keep him on life support for a bit longer as they think things over. To the passive figure in the bed, I say a few words in English before switching to Mandarin, though I'm not sure if this is his dialect. No response. I rise to leave, pretending I have somewhere else to be, when really it's my own discomfort driving me out of the room. That's when I notice the tears in his eyes. In the end, I stayed an hour, holding the man's hand, speaking occasionally. He heaves with sobs when I say Zhongguo, the middle kingdom that was once his home. When I wipe the mucus from his face, he only cries harder. Before he withdraws back into his original state of immobility, he moves his right hand to grab mine with a firm squeeze. He never uttered a word. This is the moment my four grandparents and favorite uncle's deaths behind me, a best friend's death ahead of me, that I capitulate. Chaplaincy can't be what I do in the interstices of three part-time jobs. 
Someday I will need to surrender myself to the year-long full-time training. Thank you. I'm just feeling very tender and heartful from that passage. One thing I just wanted to um, lift up in that passage is how to me, it that is um, the Bodhisattva vow, is being present and really having no idea what effect you're going to have um, and having and receiving very mysterious communications um, that you might might never have clarity on. Um, and so um, before we open it to questions in a minute, um, I was just hoping you could talk more about um, how over the course of chaplaincy you worked with not knowing, how you worked with, you know, being present with families um, in difficult situations, in beautiful situations, and maybe how um, this and your um, Buddhist practice have informed each other. Yeah, there's so many strands to that question. I think first, the container of the clinical pastoral education, I was just extraordinarily lucky to have really, really supportive supervisors and peers, fellow students, and also the whole care team. Um, it was really, we were always reminded to be unwavering in our self-care, whatever that looked like. Uh, and at first, that was easy to forget when we were all so eager to give so fully of ourselves. So that's an ongoing practice and journey in community. Um, writing has always felt very much like a spiritual practice to me. There's a lot of writing actually built into CPE. And it was such an intense year for me being in, on an oncology unit, also a very intense medical renal unit, being called to Mandarin speaking patients that sort of needed the time to write more, to reflect more. And then I guess as for Buddhist practices and teachings, I think so many of them, you know, bring me back to that one around intimacy with not knowing, but trying to think of maybe, you know, whether that's metta practice or, I know one passage we didn't get to read is the story Aaron used to tell um, when he was living in Illinois with his, he, he was back in Illinois, he lived in LA, but he went back to Illinois to visit his parents one day and he was kind of getting impatient and to go, he's from LA at this point. So he's like tailgating the car in front of him. He just like wants to get home. And then he's just like, he had a sense of humor. He had a great sense of humor. He's like, yeah, I was probably tailgating so close. The person could like see my pores in the room of the mirror, just like on it. And then the per this person in front of him takes the turn off to his parents' house. And he's like, that's the moment when I realized my mom got a new Camry. Just kept on going for a while. I've circled back to the house. And he told that story, though, because we were talking about that Buddhist teaching where in past lifetimes, everyone has been your mother, <laughs> or maybe they're your mother in this lifetime. <laughs> and I thought about that a lot in the hospital, meeting people. I mean, I think sometimes the most profound teachers are the ones who are very difficult, the people who told me to get the hell out of the room, <laughs> um, who, and actually the beautiful thing about being a chaplain is you can do that. 
it's wonderful. It doesn't go over so well with the doctor, or the nurse, or the social worker, but you can honor that request to get the hell out of the room. But the people who, you know, really touch on my sore spots. Um, yeah, and I think, I just think about that teaching and I think about how chaplaincy training, spiritual care training is kind of like a, like an embodiment of that, of what it would feel like if we lived our lives as if that was the truth, as if every single person we met was kin of some kind. And there are all kinds of mothers in the world and mothers aren't always easy. And yet, you know, as we chanted just before this, what does it look like to hold people's, um, to hold them with that kind of love, that kind of preciousness as a mother who so deeply loves her only child. So it was just a practice and I would fail at it again and again, but then to have the opportunity to go back and meet another kin, another maybe former mother. And in that way, I think it actually helped me in some ways repair some of the relationship, you know, with my mother in this life, in this world, which part of this book is about as well. Thank you for that. Um, I also wanted to say that for the purposes of this conversation, you know, I chose one pathway of beads, like one little selection. Um, but I really encourage you to read it because there are so many infinite more mandalas of beads that you could find your way through in this book. And each one unravels into the next in a really beautiful way um, that we can only kind of point to in this conversation. May our intention equally Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.